no corner of oncology is moving faster than the management of multiple myeloma, and I met with Dr. Ravi Veej on ASCO developments in this fascinating disease, and he began our conversation by reviewing a number of studies of upfront treatment in the pre-transplant setting, beginning with a trial of three versus two agents. The IFM study by Moreau looked at Velcade at a reduced dose combined with thalidomide and dexamethasone and compared to Velcade dexamethasone as an induction before transplantation, found that it appears that reduction of the dose of bertezomib led to similar rates of response and complete response after four cycles, as has been seen with more conventional doses of Velcade administered in the past. Obviously, because we're comparing with historical cohorts, it is difficult to know for sure whether this holds true. What, however, appears to be the case is that the bertezomib toxicity in terms of neurotoxicity was very much ameliorated, and that, I think, is something that people are looking at various strategies to work on. So once weekly bertezomib, as in a trial that the Italians have done, has led to similar outcomes that once weekly bertezomib appears to be less neurotoxic, and it appears that the total dose delivered of bertezomib in a randomized trial done by the Italians, wherein patients on the VMPT arm following the completion of their VMPT getting VT maintenance and the other arm getting no maintenance, the trial has shown certainly better response rates and CR rates for the four drug combination and a better progression-free survival. However, the main thing that has come out of that trial as well is that the once weekly bertezomib ameliorates the neuropathy and also the fact is that the total dose delivered of bertezomib is the same whether you give it once weekly or twice weekly. So I think both these trials have tried to reduce the toxicity of bertezomib either by dose reduction or by less frequent administration. How do you approach the issue of dose and schedule bertezomib in the transplant and non-transplant induction situation? What do you think are reasonable options outside a protocol setting? So I think that the landscape is changing. I think that three-drug combinations are getting more popular. The velcade revlimid decadron combination, as popularized by the group at the Farber, is sort of emerging as a de facto standard. And this is something that I think will grow in popularity. People are certainly still using two-drug combinations. And I think that the only data we have with three-drug combinations is actually with Velcade thalidomide decadron from a couple of trials showing that post-transplant, there are better CR and very good partial response rates. And in early follow-up in the trials, better progression-free survival. So the fact is that you cannot be faulted right now in the the absence of survival data to be using two drug combinations. However, I think more and more people are adopting three drug combinations because the majority of the data in the frontline setting, especially in transplant eligible patients, suggests that those patients that have a complete response have better overall survival. So we can either wait for the data to emerge several years or we can make the change now and hope that we are doing good for our patients. 
That is my take on the two-drug versus three-drug combinations. There are certainly four-drug combinations, too, that have moved into clinical trials, and I think those are not ready for prime time. Most of them are phase one, phase two trials, and the early data doesn't convincingly show any major improvements in response rates or CR rates with the addition of the fourth drug, and certainly no progression-free survival data even has emerged You mentioned the RVD paper from Dana-Farber, first author Ken Anderson, but presented by Paul Richardson. What were your thoughts on that? The VRD regimen is a regimen which has first been looked at in the relapse refractory setting and then moved into the upfront setting. In the upfront setting, the data presented was mature data from his trial that has been presented before, but now he had over two years of follow-up and was able to show in a 66-patient experience a response rate of 100%, which is the first time that any regimen in myeloma has produced a 100% response rate in any setting. This is also showing encouraging progression-free survival with two-year progression-free survival in the order of 68%. So I believe that this is now becoming one of the standards against which other drugs are being compared. People are doing randomized trials of Revlimid DEX or Velcade DEX versus VRD to see if the three-drug combination is required or serial administration of two-drug combinations may be the way to go. There are trials, as I alluded to, also adding a fourth agent to the VRD combination to see if we can ultimately end up with a CHOP or a CHOP reduction for myeloma that would lead to some potential cures. Obviously, that remains the goal. And also, VRD is moving into the transplant arena, both being looked at as induction therapy and as consolidation therapy in trials that are being done, both through the CTN, Transplant Collaborative Network, and a joint effort between the French and the Americans, led here by Paul Richardson. So at the ASCO 2009 Best of ASCO discussion by Dr. Vincent Rajkumar, he cited Dr. Palumbo's data on weekly bortezomib as the most practice-changing data set in 2009. And I interviewed Dr. Palumbo this year at ASCO, and I asked him what he thought was the most practice-changing data in the 2010 meeting, and he talked about the next two papers we wanted you to discuss, the CLGB and the French studies of lenalidomide maintenance after transplant. Sure. So certainly those were the major studies that caused a buzz among the myeloma community. I think that both these studies have shown a progression-free survival advantage for the use of lenalidomide maintenance. The French study had a period of consolidation post-transplant before the maintenance was started. The study done by the CLGB was a randomized study of over 500 patients. People were allowed any induction regimen per the choice of the treating physician, and then post-transplant, they were randomized to Revlimid, started at a dose of 10 milligrams a day, approximately three months post-transplant, and dose escalated to 15 milligrams a day if well tolerated after another three months. The patients were stratified based on beta-2 microglobulin and prior exposure to lenalidomide and thalidomide. It appears that there was a progression-free survival advantage demonstrated for all the subsets of patients that the risk stratification held up, showing that 
lenalidomide was superior in each of these cohorts. This is something that has obviously been also supported by the French study. The CLGB trial had about a year worth of median follow-up. The French study had two years of follow-up for somewhat a more mature study. And also, they had additional data looking at subset analysis on patients with deletion 13, people who had or did not have a very good partial response. And they also stratified for bitter to microglobulin. And once again, they showed a progression-free survival advantage with patients on the lenalidomide maintenance arm having a three-year progression-free survival of about 68% compared to 34% for the control. Obviously, this has led to a lot of discussion within the myeloma community, mainly centering around the importance of progression-free survival as an endpoint in the absence of overall survival data becoming available. It appears that with the CLGB study, patients are being allowed to cross over from the observation arm to the treatment arm with lenalidomide maintenance, and so a survival advantage may not be demonstrated. However, the French study, patients are being followed on their assigned arms, so perhaps in a few years we will have data on this. People are taking, I think, different approaches with this data. There are certainly people who feel that in this era, it is getting difficult to show survival advantage with the availability of so many treatment options for patients and that the progression-free survival advantage is convincing enough to make a change in practice. Others are feeling that the progression-free survival data is not enough, that a survival advantage needs to be shown. Still, others are adopting a policy wherein they are choosing who they are going to give maintenance to and who not. And I have heard people express different opinions on this. Some people will give maintenance to everybody. Some people will give it to patients who have had less than a very good partial response. Others will give it to anybody who's not had a complete remission. And still others are talking about giving it to patients in complete remission only if they have high-risk features. So I think everybody is trying to see how they will change their practice. Certainly, I think there will be very few people that will be using maintenance thalidomide anymore. And so I think in some measure or the other, they will be adopting Revlimid maintenance How about paper 8021, one of my favorites, really fascinating looking at the effect of zoledronic acid on survival in patients with myeloma from the Medical Research Council? Yes, that certainly was a very intriguing abstract. This trial, a very complex trial design with patients who were transplant eligible and ineligible being randomized to two different arms, having different therapies assigned in each arm for initial induction, and then also being randomized later to thalidomide or no thalidomide maintenance. However, close to 2,000 patients with a median follow-up of three and a half years. And what we see here is that the arm that got zolandronic acid had a survival advantage over clodronate. 5.5 months was the median improvement in survival, and there was a 16% relative risk reduction for death as an endpoint. This adds to data that has emerged in other tumor settings, solid tumors, where Zometa has been shown to have possible antineoplastic activity. We know that even Zometa has been shown to be active as a therapeutic agent for myeloma in the laboratory with preclinical data suggesting both in vitro and in in vivo murine models the antineoplastic effect 
effects of the drug may be somewhat distinct from its effects on bone. And in this clinical trial, they tried to control for skeletal-related events and were able to show that the survival advantage with Zometa appeared to be there irrespective of the effects on the skeletal-related events, that it was possibly a direct effect on tumor and not an indirect effect by reduction of skeletal-related events. Of course, a couple of years ago, we saw a similarly intriguing paper and published in the New England Journal, I think you were referring to in breast cancer, looking at zoledronic acid. What do you see as the practical implications of the study? I think that the practical implications of this study at the moment are probably not many because we already use Zometa as the agent of choice in most settings. Certainly, there is some use of Iridia still in certain centers, that is, Permedronate. I believe that the use of Codronate is something that is very limited to non-existent on this side of the Atlantic for myeloma. But it is something that probably will reassure us that we should try to maximize the use of Zometa, not only for bone health, but perhaps it is having an antineoplastic effect as well. And the other data that is hidden in the abstract is somewhat reassuring that the rates of osteonecrosis of the jaw were somewhat modest, less than 5%, certainly somewhat higher than with Glodronate at under a percent, because in the past it has been debated what the the true incidence of osteonecrosis of the jaw is, and we've never had a large prospective study to definitively answer this. I think this is one of the best data from a large cohort prospectively managed that gives us some idea of the true incidence of this debilitating problem. Would this get you to use oledronic acid in a patient without bone disease? I probably would at the moment not make that jump in my practice. I believe that certainly there are these positives, but there are some negatives in not only the ONJ, but in terms of renal toxicity. And myeloma is a disease wherein renal toxicity can be a manifestation of the disease and its therapies. So I think that trying to minimize renal toxicity is important. I would continue to follow the ASCO guidelines, which at the moment recommend that bisphosphonates be used for two years post-diagnosis, at which time if the disease is inactive, that they be stopped and resumed at the time of disease becoming active again. How about abstract 8002, looking at, I don't know, I guess this is a third generation imid pomalidomide. Correct. And this is very exciting. I think that we have already seen presentations in the last year with pomalidomide, a third-generation immunomodulatory drug, both by the group at the Mayo Clinic and another phase one, phase two effort run by Paul Richardson through the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium. The earlier presentations from the Mayo Clinic showed that in patients that had failed one to three prior therapies, a partial response rate of over 60% was observed. This has already been published in the journal of clinical oncology then at ash last year this group presented data on a truly revelomid refractory population, suggesting about a third of patients had a true partial response or better. And now, at this meeting, the combination of pomalidomide and dexamethasone was looked at in 
patients who had dual refractory disease, that is disease refractory to both revlimid and bortezomib. This is a patient population which Dr. Shaji Kumar showed in a poster presentation at ASH last year as a median life expectancy that is very limited. And so in this presentation by Dr. Martha Lacey in 35 patient trial, she was able to show a 21% response rate. Responses were rapid and with early follow-up, the progression-free survival at six months for this population was an encouraging 58%, which I believe is one of the best data in a population with a major unmet need. And I think that the effort that is being led by Dr. Paul Richardson looking at a slightly different dosing regimen is also something that may go before the FDA at some point, either late this year or early next year, for accelerated approval of the drug. The Paul Richardson trial uses a slightly different dosing regimen, three weeks out of four, in contrast to the Mayo Clinic experience, which is using an uninterrupted regimen of daily administration with cycles being given every 28 days. With the use of the one-week break in the Paul Richardson regimen, it appears that a higher dose of pomalidomide may be tolerated at 4 milligrams in contrast to the 2 milligrams that the Mayo Clinic used. However, the Mayo Clinic did have in their trial the ability to dose escalate to 4 milligrams for those patients that had not had a response after two cycles, and they did see one patient that had a minor response with the higher dose. You listen to these data, and you can imagine clinical situations where a doc might want to get a hold of this agent for a patient in practice. How do they do that? Is it possible? Are there enough trials out there? Is there a compassionate use program, or should there be? So the thing is that the effort being read by Paul Richardson finished the phase one study and then moved on to a randomized phase two study wherein one arm got pomalidomide alone with dex added at progression and the other arm got pomalidomide and dexamethasone right from the beginning. That study has just completed accrual and is now close to new accrual. The Mayo Clinic, I believe, does have ongoing clinical trials. To my knowledge, there is at the moment no compassionate use program that is in existence. And certainly, I believe that one should become available because this is an active drug for patients. And a lot of patients, when they have failed currently available immunomodulatory drug and bortezomib combinations, are still in very good health and wanting new options. And so I think that there is a major unmet need which this drug can fulfill. So the next paper I want to ask you about, you actually presented a really interesting study looking at a proteasome inhibitor, carfilzomib. Indeed, that is another drug that has shown robust single-agent activity. Carfilzomib is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor. It is a drug that has a distinct chemical structure, unlike bortezomib, which is a boronate. This is an epoxy peptide, and this is a drug that leads to irreversible proteasome inhibition and also is much more specific an inhibitor for the proteasome. The data presented from the trial that was led through the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium, looked at a couple of different cohorts of patients. One was bortezomib naive and the other bortezomib exposed. 
Initially, the trial accrued patients at a dose of 20 milligram per meter square and was open to both cohorts. In that phase of the trial, it was felt that the drug was well tolerated, and subsequently, the dose was escalated to 27 milligram per meter square, and at that time, it was left open only to bertizumab-naive patients. What we see is that in patients that have had prior bertizumab at the lower dose, a 21% response rate. For patients that had dose escalation, what we saw was a higher response rate. In patients that had bertizumab naive disease at the 20 milligram per meter square dose, the response rate was 45%, and at the higher dose went up to 55%. And this is in a population of patients that had failed a median of three prior therapies, a majority of whom had seen revlimid. 40% were refractory to their last therapy, several of them refractory to revlimid and bertizumab. So I think this is encouraging data. What we also saw was that the drug is well tolerated with very little neuropathy to report. And this is something that has held up in all the trials that have been done to date. So I think this, again, is a very encouraging drug, and the hope is to go before the FDA later this year to seek accelerated approval for an unmet medical need. And obviously, one will have to await the judgment of the FDA, whether they are satisfied with the level of activity seen or whether a randomized clinical trial is necessary for them to approve the drug. How about abstract 8001 from Dr. San Miguel looking at a new agent, an oral agent, panobinostat, combined with bortezomib? Sure. So this trial was actually presented by Dr. Anderson at the meeting since Dr. Hisusan Magual couldn't make it there. And it's a very intriguing abstract wherein Velcade was combined with a histone deestylase inhibitor, panobinostat. Panobinostat has been looked at in a phase one study as a single agent and had produced one very good partial response and one minimal response in the 38-patient trial. Both these responses, however, were durable. In the current study, based on preclinical evidence of synergy between these class of agents, the two drugs were combined. Bertizumib, as we know, shuts off the proteasome. However, it is felt that an alternative pathway, the agrisomal pathway, is also active in protein metabolism and that you need to shut off both pathways for maximal efficacy. When these two agents were combined in this phase 1-2 study, it was found that the 20 milligram dose of apanobinostat was the maximally tolerated dose. A true response rate in a 47-patient trial of 55% and a response rate of 40% in 15 patients that were bertizumib refractory was reported. This is certainly encouraging data, especially since it's a phase 1-2 trial and not all patients got the maximal dose of the two drugs. Let's switch over and talk a little bit about MDS and AML. And first, a paper by Steve Gore looking at the issue of stable disease in patients with MDS treated with azacitidine. Sure. So we know from the AZA001 study that azacitidine given to patients with high-risk MDS has a survival advantage over best supportive care strategies, including just transfusion and growth factor support, low-dose RSC, and chemotherapy. There was a near doubling of two-year survival when that study was initially reported a couple of years ago. What we have since learned is that with the class of DNA hypermethylating agents, perhaps responses 
classes are not a surrogate for the true long-term benefit of this class of compounds. The response rates and CR rates with DNA hypermethylating agents are very modest, and despite that, at least with 5 years of cytidine, a survival advantage has been demonstrated. But the data that we had so far was you needed to have at least a hematological improvement to benefit by the drug. So often the question that is asked is, if patients are not responding, how long do you continue? And in this trial, it was shown that you perhaps do need to continue at least for six months. Because for those patients that had stable disease at three months, about 20% of patients did have hematological improvement at six months. Whether the drug should be continued beyond six months, I think needs to be individualized because yes, there were still some patients that had a hematological improvement beyond six months, but those numbers then become more limited. This survival advantage for patients with stable disease in the early months of treatment was demonstrated despite a less favorable demographic profile of these patients in the 5 years arm, including more patients with abnormal cytogenetics, multiple cytopenias, and low platelet counts. How do you approach the issue of duration of azacytidine outside a protocol setting? So we generally have been giving 5-azacytidine so far to all patients that have a hematological improvement or better. We don't just look for a true response or a CR. Often there are very little options available anyway for these patients if you were to stop the drug. This trial, I think, will, at least for the initial few months, uh, allow us to continue even in patients with stable disease, and perhaps in some people, even with stable disease beyond six months, I think it will need to be individualized because, as I've already said, there are not too many options available should you want to stop the drug. Also, in our experience, people who stop the drug after having a response don't usually respond once again when the drug is reintroduced. So I think that it's one of those things that each individual physician will decide how he wishes to go forth with this data. As long as we're talking about it, I'm curious how you approach the dosing. Do you go five and skip the weekend, come back for two? Do you go six? Do you go seven? So I think that with 5-azocytidine, there is data in the lower-risk disease that having a break on the weekend and resuming the missed doses after the weekend or a more abbreviated course may be fine. However, for high-risk patients, a lot of the patients that really require treatment are truly high-risk patients. We do not have data on the abbreviated regimen or the regimen with a gap in between. So we generally do try to give an uninterrupted course We are fortunate being in an academic center that we do have facilities to do so on the weekend. This may not be the case in the community. So I think that you just need to do the best you can for the patients in that setting and perhaps even in high-risk patients go forth and give a break. I would try to give the seven days and not abbreviate the regimen, especially in the high-risk patients. The other issue is one of subcutaneous versus intravenous administration. And what we know is that the drug is approved for intravenous use based on the pharmacokinetic profile of the patients. We did a study with intravenous azacytidine, and it appears that a five-day intravenous course perhaps was not as effective as a full seven-day administration. Most of our patients that we treated on that trial were high risk. Let's talk a little bit about AML. I wanted to ask you about paper 6530 addressing a really difficult 
issue, which is the management of the older patient with AML. In this case, they compared frontline intensive chemo with azacitidine. Sure. So I think that the treatment of AML in the elderly is something that is very challenging. And I think that this is an area where uh, trial design is still being looked at. We were faced with the failure of clofarabine and chloretazine late last year. The FDA turned down phase two data from both these drugs and had suggested that a randomized trial be done to show the true efficacy of drugs in this setting. So what we know is that based on data using intensive chemotherapy approaches, that patients getting traditional 7 and 3 and high-dose consolidation don't do as well if they are older. Certainly, patients with AML who are older than 60 and probably more so older than 70 have no standard of care. A few years ago, it was felt that all these patients had similar outcomes, but since then, a number of groups have proposed risk stratification, and often factors like cytogenetics, age over 70, presence of comorbidities defined by either renal function or other organ function, and factors in some trials like white count, among others, fall out as being prognostic. So whether you have none, one, two, three, or four more of the factors in these different risk stratification schemas, you come up with various risk profiles. So I think that for those that are low risk in most of these risk stratification schema, often patients who are between 60 to 65 have got a good performance status, have got a cytogenetic profile that is not poor. People may still want to give conventional chemotherapy, whereas the truly old and patients with poor performance status do not do well at all with conventional chemotherapy approaches. Recently, the pendulum has swung a little bit again towards the chemotherapy for these patients based on data from a European group showing that a higher dose of anthracycline donorubicin at 90 milligram per meter square had a survival advantage for patients over 60 compared to a dose of 45 milligram per meter square. However, the survival advantage was limited to patients between 60 and 65 years of age. A Swedish study reported about a year ago showed that patients who got treatment, including intensive treatment, actually did better than those patients that got supportive care alone. So I think that there has been a pendulum that went towards minimizing therapeutic approaches for these patients to perhaps sticking with conventional chemotherapeutic approaches, at least for a proportion of these patients. However, we know that there are patients that can't get 7 and 3 chemotherapy, and there the class of agents, DNA hypomethylating agents, is what we have lately been turning to. And this is a trial that was reported by the French group, which looked at their use of favizacitidine on a compassionate use program, comparing it to a prospective trial that they had done in the past with conventional chemotherapy. What they found was that in their cohort, certainly the groups were initially imbalanced with patients who got 5-azacitidine on their compassionate use trial being older, having a lower white count, having more MDS-like features. So they tried to better risk stratify their patients to come up with comparable cohorts of patients. And so when they went and looked at specifically patients who had MDS-related AML, they found that they were down to 
a little over 80 patients with 5-Aza cytidine and approximately 100 patients that had got chemotherapy before. The overall survival of these two cohorts of patients was the same. They then also went ahead and tried to see if they could stratify for only a group that could not have got chemotherapy and based on their risk profile from the alpha trial with conventional chemotherapy, patients that were truly old had poor performance status and very high white counts. And even in this cohort, they found that the survival was the same. In the 5-azacytidine cohort, they found that the white count at presentation, 15,000 or above, was a poor prognostic factor for survival. What we have seen with multiple trials, both with decidabine and 5-azacytidine, is that this hypoproliferative AML is really the one that seems to have chances of success with DNA hypomethylating agents. And in that regard, we also did a trial that is pending review at the JCO, which we presented at ASH, looking at a very high dose of lenalidomide at 50 milligrams given for four to eight weeks and saw a very encouraging complete response rate in over 30% of patients. If restricted to patients that had white counts that were within normal range at presentation, our complete remission rate was 53%. And that just tells you that there may be a distinct biology to these hypoproliferative patients that may allow them to be better suited for being treated with uh, DNA hypomethylating agents and perhaps if the data holds up with even high-dose prevalence in the future. I think this is not a fancy biomarker, and certainly in the future, molecular profiles will, I'm sure, emerge that can better identify patients likely to respond. But I think right now, the best marker that we have is the white count.